Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Glennon Doyle has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 54 weeks and counting for her memoir, Untamed. Her fans include Oprah, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Adele. And when Joe Biden needed to turn out suburban women voters, his campaign called Doyle. She rejects the label influencer, even though she has 1.5 million Instagram followers, which, by the way, does make you influential. But Doyle started off with a much smaller following on her popular Christian parenting blog, Momastery, which dealt with topics like her marriage and her faith. She landed a book deal and wrote about her struggles with motherhood, alcoholism, drug addiction, and bulimia. Back then, she was raising a family with her husband. Now she's married to a woman, soccer star Abby Wambach. Their relationship forms a big part of her latest book, Untamed. So does the idea of being a cheetah. Doyle's metaphor for living a life that's wild and free, uncaged by society's expectations. We'll get to the cheetah stuff later, but first, I want to address how other people have tried to define Doyle. You always dislike the label Christian mommy blogger. You'd start off with Momastery, um, which was Christian leaning. Well, first of all, the only time that description began was when Abby and I announced our relationship. I had been writing forever without ever hearing that term. But when Abby and I announced our relationship, Mm -hmm. the first article, I don't know, it was from some big newspaper. I can't remember which one it was, but it said, Abby Wambach in love with Christian mommy blogger. So the reason why they said that was, of course, that was the most shocking title that the media could match to Abby Wambach, right? So the rest of the world picked up that one Freaking, and now on my tombstone, no matter what else I do, it'll say Christian mommy blog. And clearly I have some feelings about this. I feel like it's the most misogynistic, ridiculous title ever. Um, Because no male activist or New York Times bestseller is described as a daddy, right? Or by his religion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so... Uh, what was the question? Sorry, I'm sorry. a little fired up about <laughs> what, that. How do you identify then? Okay, then no, I'm not even getting near it. Though you are a mommy and you do write about bomminess a lot, mommy things. Yeah, and you know who gets to call me mom? My freaking kids don't even call me mommy. So certainly nobody else gets to. Okay. Right? I yeah. refuse to call you Thank mommy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so giving you labels to be able to describe you is offensive. It feels, I guess as a writer, I'm I'm always trying to get to the the truth of things. And to me, it feels like the way my life has played out and continues to is I keep changing, I keep evolving, and I like that about life. And the second I put anything about after am, it feels like some kind of promise that I don't want to spend the rest of my life keeping, right? It feels like I'm painting myself into a corner that, you know, what, two years from now, everybody's going to say, oh, you said you were blah, blah, blah. 
But I like the constant evolution. Um, But what I was interesting about is changing your story. One of the things I think you're conscious about is how people would view your previous work. So what what was it like doing work to convince your readers that what they read in Love Warrior, which was about trying to save your marriage with your husband, wasn't um, selling them a bill of goods, a neat narrative that wasn't real? Yeah. I remember handing that book to, I think it was my friend Martha, or maybe it was Liz, Liz Gilbert. And this is just so people know, this is Elizabeth Gilbert of Eat, Pray, Love, Fame, and other many other books. Yeah, she's one of my dearest friends in the world. And um, Oprah had already picked it as her book club pick. And I think my editors had chosen a tagline that was called An Epic Marriage Redemption Story. Right. And I remember, I think it was Liz handing it back to me and saying, I don't know what the hell this is, but this is not a love story. And it's so interesting because when you read, that's what it was reduced to as a tagline, because I think that's what sells, right? Everybody, if you give people a promise that like, this will help your marriage or I don't know. Um, The point being, I think Love Warrior is kind of (laughs) sad. I think Love Warrior is like a person who's desperately trying to figure out, like, it's too hard, like desperately trying to make this marriage thing work. And, and I think it's a woman who is, was still very, very indoctrinated into believing that suffering is godliness. So it's a picture of you at that moment. One of the, it's interesting, Love Warrior ends with the afterword about you and Craig renewing your vows and the phrase, togetherness is what Craig and I have chosen today. So you found that a sad coda to what happened. Well, it, now I don't. Right. I mean, now, you know, recently somebody said to me in an interview, actually, it's the very beginning of when Untamed came out and somebody said, is it sad that you, you and Craig worked so hard to save your marriage and that in the end it still failed? And it, that was just a funny moment for me because Craig and I, neither of us would ever say that. Like we, we, we don't consider it a failure. Like we, we married each other. We were so jacked up. I mean, I'd been sober for like five minutes. Right. I mean, all of my messiness was out there. His, we didn't find out. <laughs> I didn't find out about till later. But like, we grew up a whole lot, right? We grew, we left each other. We left our marriage different, better, fuller people with three kick-ass kids and like this weird, blended, beautiful family we have now. I don't buy the idea that a, that a successful marriage is one that is lasts forever, even when both people are freaking dying inside forever. Like, the, I just don't. Yeah, it's interesting. I myself got divorced and I said that to someone. I said, marriage isn't an investment that you then lose. It just, it's what it is. You know, it just ends. That's okay. And I think it, it bothers people. That actually bothered a lot of people. Uh, I had several people when I got divorced. You can't do that. I'm like, I absolutely can watch me. I just did, you know? I mean, but I think it bothers people also because it scares people because people feel like, wait, wait, you mean if I'm just desperately not happy, I have to leave? I think it's challenging. There was like, I was talking to a friend of mine after I said I was getting divorced and uh, they kept asking me what percent happy I was. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what do you mean percent? Like what percent? 50%? Because I'm like 43%. (gasps) happy. And I was like, you'll be getting divorced in a year. And she did. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about your influence on people, though, because you're living sort of out loud. Everything you do as you shift and change, 
people seem to hang on everything you do. And uh, the author Brene Brown wrote about you, Glennon Doyle is church. People talk about the gospel of Glennon Doyle. Does it worry you that people are are turning to influencers like you in that way? What kind of um, responsibility do you feel? I mean, just the word influencer is so freaking annoying. I can't even begin to like, t- and it's so misogynistic. Like, is it? And, and, and by the way, that article, unbelievably misogynistic. It was an op-ed in the Times by author Lee Stein, and she called you an instavangelist. Oh my God. Like no, no other of, of our male, Brene and I's male counterparts were even mentioned in that article. It's only the women. Uh, consider an influencer. I mean, only focusing on my Instagram account, not any of my books, not my activism, not my nonprofit. Like it's just, and by the way, everybody who calls Brene a self-help guru, like it's such horse shit. Her male counterparts, they're not self-help. They're, they, they write about leadership, right? But since women are such a mess, any woman who d- dares to speak about her life is, or other women's lives is a self-help person, right? So a lot of that is framed in such a way that, I'm not sure what an influencer is. I mean, I know that I'm a writer and an activist who has an Instagram account. And and I actually think that social media is, is what we make of it, right? I think that I have a beautiful community on social media and there's some stuff about social media that makes me sad and depressed and crazy. And there's also my Instagram community has raised $30 million for people all over the... So I'm not sure what influencer means, but you know what it feels like to me, Kara? It feels like the new mommy blogger. It feels dismissive. I want you to go into why it's misogynistic. I want you to break that down. Well, I think that it's very often the case that when a man puts work out into the world, the world looks at the work and says, is, is this work worthy? And I think that when a woman puts work out into the world, the world looks at the woman and says, is this woman worthy of putting out work? For example, the first big article that was put out about Untamed in a big newspaper, the headline was, Glennon Doyle writes third memoir, question mark, question mark. As if you shouldn't have many memoirs in you. That's the suggestion. Like, Jesus Christ, this woman is going to say a third thing? Like, (laughs) We already let her say two things. She said two things, and then she's going to come back and say a third thing. Like, who does this person think she is, right? Sedaris came out with his new, and it was like, David Sedaris releases 158th memoir about, like, not question mark, question mark. So so that was just really interesting to me because it was like, oh, this is literal. Like, the literal headline is, is this woman worthy of putting out a third idea? Or does she have, is she pulling something on us? I think that was- Is she? But what do you call yourself if you're not an influence? How do you describe yourself? I am a New York Times bestselling writer, author, and I am an activist. That's it. And I have social media accounts. Like everyone else has jobs and social media accounts. It's still influential and you still have impact on people. Um, You said you're an activist with a social media account, but you actually, people do seem to be attached to you in a way that's that's almost religious in many ways. When people talk about you who are big fans, they seem to be looking for something and you seem to give them answers. Do you feel that way at all ever? Well, I think it's interesting in terms of what a church does provide for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, in I have tried very, very hard to be parts of church. And I think that church for me 
organized religion for me has required too much abandonment of my individual self and my free thinking. But what I have always loved about church is the sort of community, the connection, the belonging, and the purpose, right? The service, the ability to connect to something bigger than yourself. And what my community is, is people who um, feel a sense of belonging, I think, because all different types of people and ideas are welcome there, but also feel purpose because of Together Rising. This is your charity organization. And this community of women is not just people who are showing up and sharing quotes with each other. These, this community of women is a, a, a group of people who have become the, the leading force of reuniting families at the border, who have showed up over and over and over again for people over all across the planet. So it's purpose. It's it's service. It's like that feeling that, that church gives you, maybe. This is the connection, that we are there to feel less alone and to also turn our heartbreak into something that matters. What is your What is your role in that community then? Well, I think the really cool thing is, you know, I think a lot of people are, are surprised that our community has been able to roll so much with the huge changes in my life. Like, for example, how does a a largely faith-based community that is back then was largely Christian, right? How do they all stick with you after your divorce when you announced uh, marrying Abby, right? Like, how does that happen? Um, And I think it's because what has always mattered to me most is my sobriety. Like, I remember being on the bathroom floor holding a positive pregnancy test when I was 25 and thinking there was something about me that said it's time to show up like now or never, everything good about my marriage and my parenting or my friendships or my career all has to just hangs on the sobriety, right? And what I learned very early about my sobriety is the only way I keep it is if I don't have shame and secrets, right? Right. Um, And you wrote in 2011, life is like playing those little Russian nesting dolls that pop out uh, of each other one at a time. Just when you think there can't be any more versions of yourself, look, there's still more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's interesting. That was a lot of years ago. Um, but I think that if I had to, I don't think versions make sense to me anymore. I think I'm just trying to get to the version of myself that I would have been if nobody else told me who I should be. And I think that I keep getting a little bit closer to that. And I think that um, it's it feels more of a returning, honestly, than a becoming right. different things. Meaning you're making the choices. Meaning I'm making the choices. And, and, it, and it's surprising sometimes. I mean, when I fell in love with Abby, just to be clear, I had never even kissed a girl before. Like I had no context for what was happening. Um, and it, what happened is that I had to go dramatically outside of every single thing that had been expected of me to find a love that felt true, where I finally felt comfortable in my own skin. And that's what I've had to do in every freaking area of my life. That's what I've had to do with faith, with gender, with all of it. So, but that feels like a returning, like a shedding of all of these, um, the, the ways that I was living and being that the world told me would make me happy and successful. So let's talk about that because this Untamed is about that, about your shift. You had never considered being gay. I, as a gay person, I've known since I was four, like absolutely. Yeah, and, and so, and Abby, Abby would say the same thing, right? Um, listen, I, I have so much to, 
to learn about this. I mean, truthfully, I was having a conversation with a friend a while back and she was saying to me, how the hell, what? Like you didn't know, like you never knew, you weren't pretending before and now you're not or pretending now weren't that. And I said, well, you know, like I've honestly, I've always felt like women's bodies were way more attractive than men's bodies, but, but everybody thinks that. And she goes, Glennon, no, they don't. (laughs) I don't think that. Yeah. And I was like, what? Right. I do feel, though, that while I understand completely now the need for sticking with the born this way narrative, I think there's a wider experience of queerness. Like, I, and, and so many of us are afraid to talk about it because the, it feels like there's only room for one narrative inside of the LGBTQ experience, and that's no born this way. Like the idea of, well, I don't know. Like, is it possible that there's a lot more that ha- like experience and learning and politics? Is it possible this is all more fluid and that the entire story is not you're either in the closet or you're out? When I talk like this, alarm bells go off often. I, I have endless conversations with my friends who are LGBTQ activists and who say to me, this is why talking like that is dangerous. And then I also have so many other people who are like, oh my God, are you saying that out loud? Like I've never, Mm -hmm. that's how I feel. So talk about why it would be dangerous. I mean, here you are in a high profile gay relation with a woman. Mm -hmm. Why is that dangerous not identifying it? So it's dangerous because I talk about the fact that I should be able to be free to share my story and my truth in any way that I need to and want to. That if I want to talk about being queer as being fluid, that maybe I don't feel like I was born this way, that that is a privilege that I have because it that saying I am free to speak in any way I want to about queerness, the, the world accepts like 25 queer women. And it's because they're white and it's because they're they have fame privilege and it's because they're um, a lot of different things. It's because I'm married to a gay icon. Like I have a lot of freedom that a lot of queer kids and people all over the country are still dealing with Bible belt politics where the only re- way their families will allow them to stay out of conversion therapy is if their families can um, hold on to this narrative that God made them this way. And that it's immutable and that it's inborn. And that is their excuse for allowing their children to live. So when I speak in terms of choice, that is a threat to the very thing that keeps queer people all over the country safe. Mm -hmm. You tell your story rather loudly, actually, in a way that you didn't hold back. You met Abby and you fell in love with her instantly at an event, at a conference. What was the price of acting on it? Um you know, when we finally shared this with very close people in my career, they, the the general consensus very directly to me was this will be career suicide. Like you can do this. You can, you can leave your husband six weeks before this actual launch of this book, but it will be career suicide. Okay. But the real one was the, the kids. I mean, it was, I was scared to death. I was taught that you don't hurt your kids no matter what, you know? And I think that the most important maybe moment of my life and probably the beginning of this whole concept of untaming was looking at Tish. Your daughter? My daughter. Knowing that I had actually decided to to go back to the broken marriage. So there was a time 
during that when I thought, no, I can't do this. And looking at her and thinking, oh, this is so interesting. I am staying in this marriage for her, but what I want this marriage for her. And if I wouldn't want this marriage for her, then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering? That is, that is taming. So one of the most, uh, I think, effective parts in the book was you telling your kids. Mm. I was in that meeting too. I've, I've had a meeting like that. That was a, quite a genuine moment to me in that hurting them was the thing that needed to be done, even though it was hurtful. Yeah. I don't have a lot of moments in my parenting where I have actually been the one to sit them down and deliver heartbreak to them. I was the one who was making a decision that was going to break up their family. It it really felt like the amount of self-trust I had to have to be like, this is, this is going to hurt you so badly and not say, but eventually you'll see it's the right thing. Like nobody says, it, it, you can't say that in the moment. That's a terrible thing to say to someone mm-hmm. who's about to, whose heart's about to be broken. But to believe and know that deeply. Yourself. That that, myself, right? You obviously make a lot of money doing all this, your books and things like that. What is your relation to the money you make and the power it gives you? And the influence you can wield by creating this sort of multimedia organization? Oh my God, Abby and I talk about this from morning until night now. We really just started having money this year. How much money do you make? I've made a, sh- I've made a lot of money on Untamed. You're not going to give me a dollar value? Life-changing amounts of money. Well, Untamed has sold 2 million copies in one year. So multiply that. Right. Um, you know, okay, something that happened recently. My, my parents were um, hurting with the whole... COVID thing and they were scared to be in their apartment building. And Abby and I were just like, I was in tears one night, like what the hell? And we were like, holy shit, we can buy them a fucking house. We bought my parents a house. That was power. I am sad. I have no control over this situation and I tomorrow can fix it. Power. We live in a town in Naples, Florida. We we ended up here for many different reasons. And there have been many beautiful things about being here. And it just really stopped feeling beautiful this year. A lot of it has to do with the conservative nature of this place, but it's like living inside of a Trump rally. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are a gay couple. We have a gay kid. We have very liberal thinkers. You know, a couple months ago, we're like, why don't we move? Mm -hmm. So right now I'm thinking about power in a way of being able to do what the fuck I need to do. So are you moving out of the Trump rally? Yeah, we're moving in two months. Where are you moving? Hermosa Beach. Oh, in California. Mm-hmm. Very pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about money mm-hmm. being, how do you buy as much time and, and, and freedom back for yourself? I am constantly, Kara, thinking about power in terms of when do I get to quit? When do I have enough When do you have enough to quit? I don't know. And that's the question. So I was raised by two public school teachers. We we always had enough, but not ever any extra. And so I have a general feeling of scarcity when it comes to money. Mm -hmm. Abby, she is more, there will always be enough. And, you know, Mm -hmm. totally unfear-based. Abundance. Abundance. That's your next book in case you're interested. Does she make more money than you? Not anymore. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah. And it's so amazing that like that dynamic, we talk about that all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think that money and power is the thing I'm so much, it feels like the same as food to me. Like with the food and the desire and what's allowed to be enough. Am I allowed to want that? Am I allowed to have that? You know the answer. You know the answer to that. What is it? It's yes. Yes. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Yes. Just so you know. More. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Brene Brown, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Glennon Doyle after the break. This podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. I use the New York Times games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England. Sandwich is a city in England. Reading is a city in England. And I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, (laughs) that should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So I want to talk about pain uh, for a second. Pain is, is a lot in your story. It's also in the brand a little bit. You're, you're retelling the worst things that happened to you. What's that like to do that for an audience? I mean, I don't think of, I don't think of it that way. Like, I just don't think of it as constantly recounting the worst things in my life. I think I'm, I'm constantly recounting the most significant moments in my life. Mm -hmm. And while many of those have been wildly joyful, I can't get away from the fact that most of the most significant moments of my life, transformational times when shit hit the fan were painful times. I think I learned really early that I was supposed to be happy all the time Mm -hmm. from the culture, from my family, that there were just like a few emotions that I was allowed to have that would deem me successful, right? Like gratitude and joy and happiness. Sad wasn't allowed, in other words. Sad wasn't allowed. Angry wasn't allowed. Jealous wasn't allowed. Doubt, fear, like heartbreak, confusion. So I think the fact that I do talk about pain more than the average bear is just because the average bear isn't allowed to talk about pain. 
one of the things you did, though, it, in your previous books, you identified pain with beauty, and you had the word brutal, which is both brutal and beautiful. And you posted on Instagram, if you're hurting, it means you care. If you care, you are beautiful. In short, if you are hurting, you are beautiful. What do you think of that word now? Do you feel the same way about that? Yeah. I mean, I, the moment, the freaking moment that I called my sister from the bathroom floor and told her to come pick me up and take me to my first recovery meeting, it was very clear to me in that moment that if I wanted something as beautiful as to become a mother, that I was going to have to start showing up for the brutal parts of being human. And I refused to do that. My entire life was about every single time I felt anything, finding Anything I could drinking, drugs, drinking, drugs, food, sex, whatever it was to not feel because, Mm -hmm. and, and, and what I figured out later was like, you can either take the brutal along with the beautiful, or you can just numb both out. But if I could find a way, listen, if I could find a way to just have the good stuff without the bad stuff, I would take it. It just, it's, I haven't found that. Now, one of the things you and Abby do is live quite out loud. You're on social media, you chronicle a lot of things. And there, I, I thought there was an interesting quote in this recent piece on you in The New Yorker. Um, whenever they find themselves on the verge of a certain kind of interaction, one of them whips out a phone to record it. You know, you're like, oh, here they go again. Each of us knows what's coming. It's part of our online story. Talk about the pressure to be on online and the, the performative aspects of it. Why does everything need to be said? Hmm. Why does everything need to be said? I mean, that's just such a interesting question to ask a writer. It's like asking a a freaking architect. Why does everything have to be built? I don't know. It's just the only thing I fucking know how to do. Like what I'm unemployable other than this. Like this is what I do. Like this is my job. Like this is my, the way I'm built is to think about the human experience and express it. This is what I do to contribute. But but you're dodging a little bit because you're writing about you, like other, even Liz Gilbert writes about other people, right? Why is it about you? Yeah. So here's what I think that the reason that my memoirs are so popular Mm -hmm. is because I never write a single word until I ask myself, how is this not just about me, but how is it about everyone? So while it is true that I'm writing about myself, I'm always writing about all of us. And that's why people find themselves in my writing. And and I'm just... I do find it interesting the amount of questions that I get about, isn't it Mm self-indulgent? Isn't it, um, people will call it confessional. Yeah. And Lee Stein said, um, this is an obsession with the self. She was talking about social media in general. Social media encourages this narcissism obsession with your feelings and it's detrimental to society. Is she right? Yeah, this is, I mean, she's the one that just released a book about self-help, right? And, and, and No, but I want to get to the sense of that, the idea of living out loud so much because you do that. You are exemplified. You do it beautifully, actually. Mm-hmm. What, is there a cost to it? Yeah. I'm not trying to ride you on this, but there people talk about this issue, whether there's too much revelation and really nothing at the same time, that it's constant performative because teens do it. Lots of people do it. Well, I mean, I think just like any art or any writing or any ways that people present themselves, there will always be forms of it that are empty and there will always be forms of it that are very, very full and that everyone should decide that for themselves, right? I do it in a way that I believe, and when I lay my head down at night, I believe that I am doing it in a way that is contributory, that like contributes 
So it's not a cage. May I just use your metaphor? hundred percent. I, sometimes I do feel, I, I do get to the point sometimes where I feel like it's a cage. Mm-hmm. And that's usually when I have put something out there that makes people mad at me. Mm. <laughs> like when, when the internet gets mad at me, I feel sad. Really? <laughs> and what did they get mad at you? Give me an example. Oh, listen, Carrie, yesterday I said something completely dumbass what on did you do? Twitter. Okay, so I got so annoyed about people being late. Okay, this is one of my major pet peeves. I do not understand in a professional setting being late. Like people will actually ask me for my time. I will say, okay, and show up and they will be 12 minutes late. I will never understand it. I said something on Twitter yesterday about the annoyance of people being late. And wow, I mean, what happened was a whole hell of a lot of people said, this is completely ableist. And so this community focused on neurodiversity came to me and people usually give me a lot of grace and they'll explain themselves in ways that are kind. Um, But people called me on it and I felt sad and misunderstood (laughs) and embarrassed really. And so what happens when I feel that way is inevitably I turn to Abby and say, I hate the internet. I hate everything. (laughs) I, no one understands me. And now it lasts me about, I don't know, 13 minutes. And then I think, shit, I made a mistake. Like I, I do have something to learn here and they're right. And then, you know, at the end of the night, I retweeted my dumbass tweet with the whole thread so that other people like, look here, I fucked up. I thought better of it. Yeah. There's not a lot of forgiveness online these days though, is there? You know, there's not, but here's what I seriously believe. If I had to put one mandatory class in each elementary school, it would be, let's teach people how to listen to each other. And also let's teach a class on apologizing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because nobody freaking knows how to apologize. And there's this like magic sauce in a true apology that disarms people and surprises people like no other. So so that was the last thing you apologized for? Yeah, yesterday, Carol, like freaking <laughs> six hours ago. <laughs> six hours ago. <laughs> What's the last thing you apologize for at home? Oh, um, so Abby is the kindest person on earth, Okay. And I think I keep thinking that if I surround myself with kind people that are unsuspicious and non-judgmental, that that will make me less judgmental and less suspicious, but actually just like exacerbates everything. Like it's, since she's the good cop, I always feel like I need to be like on guard more, right? And so because of that, I can be very, very controlling. And so um, what I am constantly apologizing to Abby for is trying to control what she thinks, breathes, does, eats, says. (laughs) Um, That's our ongoing, and it's all fear-based and it's all anxiety-based and she's unbelievably beautiful and and generous about it, but that's what I apologize for the most. Okay, so the internet actually can be like a cage. Do you ever feel like going full cheetah and ditching social media? Yes, I feel like that's probably the goal. I don't, and I I understand that having said everything that I've said, that sounds weird, but there is a part of me that hopes that there is another way to, to have connection and share ideas that is different than the internet. And I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'll figure it out for Mm -hmm. my community. Have you tried some of the new ones like Clubhouse or Twitter spaces or things like that? Okay. Clubhouse scares the crap out of me. Listen, my friend, Lovey, she texts me every once in a while and says, do you understand that you've been in the like 
Nigerian room for three hours. And I don't know I'm there. Like I have somehow pressed a button in my pocket that makes me show up in a clubhouse room accidentally. And she texts me and says, Glennon, you're in the room. So clubhouse, um, no, I have not nailed yet. Would you want to get into something? Maybe, maybe. It seems interesting. There's one on Twitter too. There's Twitter spaces. But you know what? That just feels like more things. Also, it just feels like more things to then be relevant on. Well, Glennon, you're in the communications business. You are in the. I know. I know. You're going to go right into into 3D. We're not. Thanks, Kara. Great. I'm going to be a hologram. Hologram. Yeah. Showing up in people's, in their bedrooms, waking them up in the morning. Hi, it's Glennon. The untamed. <laughs> um, let's talk about you using your platform for politics. So much of 2020 was parsing the importance of suburban white women voters, arguably a big part of your demographic. You want to be more vocal about racial injustice, but there's all these issues around white women playing in the racial justice movement. And you said to BuzzFeed, part of my work is to get white women to understand who they actually are in this moment compared to who they imagine themselves to be. This is a really difficult line, I think, that you're trying to walk here. Yeah. Well, it keeps changing. I'm doing it very awkwardly and screwing up and starting over. I used to think about this in terms of like allyship. Like here I am, I'm showing up to do the thing to help you, right? And lately I've just been thinking about whiteness a lot. That it's like, okay, I see the world. I will accept my proximity to power, which is like white men. But in exchange for that, I will make all these promises, which is that I will never demand any real power, right? That I will look away from all of the injustice being done to anyone else other than me. You know, I will accept the the comfort and protection of the police, but without asking what they're doing in that neighborhood. It's like over and over again, for sure, we knew all this shit. Like we know all of this, the way that the world works. So at what point did we decide to be so silent and so complicit? And what has it cost to us? right? That like, it's cost us our humanity is how I feel. So what are you doing to further that discussion? Because you obviously have an influence on this particular group. What I do is I go where I'm invited to listen to Black women and women of color who have always been on the front lines of every social justice movement. And then I do what they tell me to do, which is usually go get the white women. Like, that's literally what they said to me about, share the mic now. Your job is to go get the white women. And then I speak the best I can to them because the truth is that it is not true that everyone knows what I just said. And you think you have an important influence on that demographic? I for sure have an important influence on that demographic because they read my books and because they listen to my speaking events and because, you know, one of my jobs is just to offer a new way of looking at things. So do you think you have political influence? Um... Yeah. I mean, you know, the Biden campaign called us and said, we need you to show up um, for many, many reasons. So, um, yeah, of of course I do. What did you do for them? Um, Well, what, what I figured out and my team figured out is that there wasn't enough of a plan for people like me to organize. And so what we did was we created our own 40 day activism 
campaign, I guess it was called. And every single day for 40 days, we offered uh, a way for people to become more educated and and actually involved in their democracy. Are you going to remain engaged in politics? Yes. Yeah, I don't have, I mean, because of Together Rising, like the way that I feel about Together Rising is that, you know, that is all politics. And it's it's not, you know, I, I figured out a long time ago that I don't know, what I know is that I don't know. And what I mean by that is I know what I'm good at, which is that I'm really good at storytelling and I'm really good at fundraising. I have a face that people have been trained to trust with money. So my job is to be a bridge between the people in their homes who are willing to give and those people, right? So I don't know what the hell, I don't know these communities. I don't know what they need, but I know the people who know, right? So all of that is political. That's all, everything that I do is political. It doesn't have to be just a, you know, a talk with Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton for it to be political. I feel like every word that I say is, and and dollar that I transfer is political. So is there another memoir in you? Or do we have to wait for another seismic event? I would really prefer there to not be another seismic event. I thought that I would never write another book after Untamed. Um, But then about two months ago, I started writing again in my closet. So I don't know. About? Um, I started writing about my kid uh, and my, our relationship to, uh, I guess I would call it like queerness. I started writing about being a public woman and all of the things that that means. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just writing. We'll see. Well, good. That's a good thing. I have a name of a book, you know, you can't steal it though. Okay. It's called, I have a three, it's a three-part series. Well, first one's called Noah's a Complete Sentence. Mm, excellent. The second one is Maybe I'll Call You Back. And the third is called Yes, I'll Take That. So. Mm, trilogy. Trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. So who to you is the most, uh, uh, the biggest cheetahs right now. I hate to use your metaphor, but you wrote it, so I'm going to b- borrow it. Do you think Megan and Harry, uh, are they living wildly like cheetahs? Who is the biggest cheetah right now to you? So I felt unbelievably inspired by the activists on the ground in Georgia mm-hmm. because it was like proof of hope to me. Because, holy shit, like they, they did it. You know, it's not like they didn't turn the state blue. They just were, they helped the state show its blueness. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That it had always been blue. And they were so wise and connected and, and unafraid. But to be fair, I also think that Meghan Markle is a goddamn cheetah. Like in terms of, <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, I, in terms of setting freaking boundaries in a family and honoring yourself and refusing to abandon yourself, yeah. like my, I have friends who can't even, you know, not answer the phone when their mother-in-law calls and mm-hmm. she's out here leaving the royal family. Like I, I find her to be a deep cheetah inspiration. All right. Well, let me end with my ba- My daughter is the cheetah. I'm waiting for them to take the confidence away that she has in uh, buckets. It won't happen on my watch. I'll tell you that. That's right. That's right. There's no way they're taking it away. I'll kill them. Yeah. All right, Glennon. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Bye, Kara. Thank you. All right. Bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Hiba Elarbani, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. 
with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you like a cheetah, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.